Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Etna Woon Trombley. Etna is the CEO of South San Francisco-based Lycia Therapeutics. Many in biotech have heard of targeted protein degraders. Arvinus and Chimera Therapeutics are a couple of the well-known companies that make these drugs which work to inhibit intracellular proteins. This approach has drawn a lot of excitement because it can access previously undruggable proteins by essentially dragging them into the cellular garbage bin. Fascinating as this area of work is, there are many other proteins that can't be targeted this way because they are secreted outside cells or reside on the cell membrane. This requires a different approach, and that's where Lycia comes in. The company is working on lysosomal targeting chimeras, known as LITAX for short. Carolyn Bertozzi, the chemist who won the Nobel Prize earlier this month, has her fingerprints on this one. Her team at Stanford University devised a method for binding both a cell surface lysosome targeting receptor and the extracellular domain of a targeted protein. That work was posted in a preprint in 2019. Versant Ventures was among the many groups who read that paper and wanted to get to work developing a potentially new class of medicines against a wide range of targets. They agreed to work together, Versant committed $50 million, Aetna was recruited as CEO, and the company was off and running. A little over a year ago, Lycia struck a multi-year research collaboration with Eli Lilly that brought in a $35 million upfront payment. This is a pretty big idea for drug discovery. One program note. This conversation was recorded in early September, before Bertozzi won the Nobel Prize for her work on bioorthogonal chemistry. Listeners may want to go back and listen to a long-run podcast I did with Bertozzi in April of 2019. I'll post that in the show notes on TimmermanReport.com. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. Now, please join me and Etna Woon Trombley on the long run. Etna Woon Trombley, welcome to the long run. Thanks for having me here. So um, I'm really excited to dig in on uh, Lycia and uh, the work you're doing with uh, lysosomal targeted chimeras uh, for people who want to get into the science. But uh, let's just start off with a little bit about who you are and how you came to this uh, exciting opportunity. Uh, Where'd you grow up? Well, um, I grew up actually here in the Bay Area, um, was born in Kentucky, but less than five months um, after I was born, I was moved, moved to here um, in San Francisco. So um, 
I, I identify as a Bay Area native. Okay. And what did your parents do and what brought them out to the Bay Area? Um, well, my dad uh, actually was a professor um, of physics um, in Kentucky, and I think he learned that academia wasn't his thing. And so um, he and my mom moved out here to San Francisco, and I think this was the start of the um, semiconductor out here um, in Silicon Valley, and so he partook in that. Oh, wow. So... Um... This is uh, a pretty educated family. Uh, did you have any siblings? Yeah, and I have a, a younger brother. Um, he's an engineer. Um, so I think we've, I think uh, my dad has exposed us to a lot of the sciences and um, it just ended up both of us uh, taking some career path down that road. Uh huh. Uh huh. Do you have any particular memories of growing up uh, like in that semiconductor world, like dad talking about what? computers we're going to be able to do someday yeah i mean i think he probably took it one step further than most other parents he um on the weekends he would take us to his lab um at the company at where he was for quite a long time and so we got to see you know directly what he was doing right because you know when your parents talk to you about um things especially in science it can be quite abstract um and one of the reasons why he actually moved from academia um into industry was just to have take a more applied approach um you know of his learnings and so we saw it right like you see the chips you see the computers you see all the things that he's doing um to that are applied to things that you use on a day-to-day basis and i think that's how we uh, my brother and i actually just got really excited about it right because we just saw it in real life so you must you had computers at home and and were doing homework like as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um it was great. I mean probably early adopters everything from that but you also see it in video games, right? Like young kids who like that but the understanding what's inside <laughs> and what it, what's made out of it's uh it was a lot of fun. So uh, what kind of student were you and what kind of school does uh schools did you attend? Well, so we grew up in Cupertino, um, and so it was, you know, a lot of sciences and exposure to STEM, not just from home, but also at school. Um, So I remember even in the early days, because of how, you know, we were, um, you know, we got to see a lot of these different experiments my dad was running in the lab, that I got intrigued by doing that um, myself. So I was one of those kids that did the science fair experiments um, in elementary school, junior high school, and onward. Um, having that, you know, hands-on um, approach in the lab was something I guess I picked up at a pretty early age because of that. Um, yeah, and so we we were just, you know, um, very fortunate to be in an environment, as you can imagine here, at least um, in Silicon Valley and in the Bay Area, just having a lot of exposure um, to various disciplines and kind of getting to explore different things. So when I went to, but I thought I was going to be an undergrad uh, pre-med. Um, so I went to um, UC San Diego as a uh, bioengineer, where that's where the applied um, part of it was, as well as um, in a pre-med um, environment. But, you know, as you probably can see, I quickly turned into a chemistry major um, from actually early on. Um, and I, it was more really about, you know, going to my first chemistry class, seeing the professor there actually demonstrate something from his lab, right? And showing again, the application of what he was doing. I got really enraptured by it and uh, was fortunate to be able to join his lab for the next four years. And I rolled on into chemistry. 
so chemistry just hooked you or was there something about pre-med that just didn't resonate? Yeah, you know, it's one of those, it's probably one of those idealistic jobs that you have as a kid sometimes. And, you know, you hear a lot of people and say, oh, I want to be a doctor when I grow up, right? So I think I was one of those. Um, but, you know, and I never really appreciated fully, you know, if I was to work in the lab and run experiments, what kind of job you would have, right? And so I just didn't really think about it. Um, and then it really took, you know, seeing again, um, you know, my chemistry professor, you know, kind of demonstrating some, again, a really applied materials-based um, approach and what he was doing in his lab for me to get really excited about trying it out. Um, and that's what converted me. This is something that I think happens to a lot of young people. I mean, they just don't know so many different types of jobs that are out there and what you can do with certain kinds of training. We kind of default to the things that, uh, that are familiar to us, like a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer, uh, the people that the other grownups in your community that you see around you. But you, you go off and you discover uh, at UCSD that there's this whole world of chemistry um, and a lot of things you can do with it. What did you think that you might you might do with it in those early days as an undergrad? I had no idea, Luke. And it's something that as you, if, you know, as we explore my career a little bit, you'll see that I really had no idea what I was going to do from uh, place to place and roll to roll. Um, as long as I was really getting challenged and learning um, new things, um, you know, because I put like my all into whether it's school or my job. And so it has to be something that is motivating and something that I can learn, right? So um, I, I just got excited about working lab. I did that for a few years and then I said, okay, well, I want to continue doing it because I really enjoy it. Not knowing really what it means to go and get your PhD um, in chemistry. I, I was fortunate to join, um, you know, a great program at MIT um, and, you know, but I was surrounded by many people who knew that they wanted to be professors for a very long time. I did not know that. And you've heard my history, right, um, with my dad who, um, you know, decided that academia was not his thing. Um, but, you know, I enjoyed the lab work and the research and exploring um, and running experiments. So, um, but I realized that when academia wasn't for me either, um, then I started thinking about roles. And, you know, you naturally transition and think about, okay, well, maybe I'll be a scientist in industry. So I was exploring that. And back in those days, you know, um, roles outside of science and research were considered going to the dark side. Um, but I did have some friends who did do that. And um, long story short, I ended up, you know, going into the more business side of things. And I um, did my postdoc in business as a management consultant um, after getting my degree. So. Well, now, now, if you enjoyed the, um, the exploring and the discovery aspect of doing science... What was it about academia that made you decide that wasn't for you and that you wanted to uh, find something else to do with your chemistry training? I think it was what you, I mean, I think I liked the breadth um, of, you know, learning about lots of different things, not just one thing, um, which my view, at least, or perception um, as being in academia, that you really focus, right, your area of exploration into one particular um, you know, one particular part of a field, right? And it's quite narrow. Um, and and probably I didn't really know what that was going to be if I was going to go into academia, right? So I think that was one thing. 
And, um, and the other is like, I really just um, felt like, again, back to the whole applied nature of what you do, I really wanted to see if there was something that could have more immediate impact um, with what I would be doing. So I think that's what ultimately led me out of the academia. Okay, so uh, now chemistry it can obviously go lots of different directions, but you had mentioned um, an early interest in pre-med and bioengineering. How did this come back? Did it happen at MIT in graduate school where you kind of moved back toward biology and biotech? Actually, so my, my PhD was in physical inorganic chemistry. So the most far removed, I think, um, maybe along with PCAM, uh, having <laughs> any applicability whatsoever in what I'm doing today. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting. That's why I'm telling you, like, it wasn't uh, any prescribed path that I decided to take, right? Um, and I think it really took me in the exploration when I was a management consultant and working with lots of different um, healthcare companies of all sizes that helped me really appreciate and get really excited about being um, in biotech. Um, okay. Well, this is a pretty common path for people coming out of graduate school. You sign up with a consulting firm, you get exposed to lots of different uh, clients and their particular set of issues, and you can really cast that wider net and learn about a lot of different things. What was that experience like for you? Oh, it was great. I mean, as, as you can imagine, with some of these firms, you largely spend a, um, time with your, you know, big pharma companies, larger medical device, maybe even government systems with working in healthcare. That was my early experience. But I was fortunate to have been here in the Bay Area, um, as you know, where we have many private early stage biotech companies. Um, and I was able to work on one such project where with a biotech company where they were actually preparing their S1. Um, and so they said, here's our technology, here's our platform, and you really help us think about what would be, you know, the third leg of the stool. Where can we apply this technology and help us draft, right, this remaining portion of our S1, which is a very interesting project and not a common um, project. And so, um, yeah, I remember those days sitting there with the CEO, the CSO, the technical team, um, and working on this, and I, that's the, my the light bulb went off, and I said, okay, you know what? I actually want to be on the other side of the table, so to speak, right, and be part of that from the early in the beginning, right, um, rather than doing this as a consultant. Well, for those not familiar, an S one IPO prospectus, this is one of the most informative documents that a company is ever going to publish about who they are and what they do. And so, to get exposed at that point. Uh, it's uh, it's really a great learning experience. It's very thorough, very detailed on the, on the science and the business, and and you have to explain it in plain English to an investor. That's right. That's right. I was really lucky um, to be on that project, and I, that's when I knew, and I uh, decided I'm going to go look for a role at a small biotech company, so I could have that again, right, the breadth of um, um, of experience, you know, at one place. So I don't want to talk about every stop for you along the way, but um, I know you did a time as an assistant at Novartis. Um, uh, what did you uh, gain from that experience? Yeah, I think it was a really, uh, so this was the chief of staff role um, with working with Joe Jimenez, 
um, who, as you know, was the predecessor to Voss, current CEO of Novartis. And what was really interesting about um, the time of this role was this was when Joe was um, promoted from head of pharma and within Novartis to running the whole Novartis group, right? Um, and so this was an opportunity that I thought was quite unique and rare that I would be working with him as he took on, obviously, a new board. Um, I think five new businesses at the time. Novartis was also acquiring Alcon at the time. Um, and so helping him as best as I could, right, actually as an outsider, because I was new to the Novartis system uh, and, and the company, um, and helping him execute on what he needed. It was an amazing learning opportunity to see how someone like that runs an organization of that magnitude and size and all the issues that you can imagine that could come on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it was, it was fantastic. And uh, so were you over in Europe for a while? Yeah, I did. So I moved to Basel um, and uh, Switzerland and I was there for a couple of years, um, you know, and I, it, that was a great experience as well, living out in Europe. Uh, but as I mentioned, I'm a Bay Area native, so it was really um, clear that at some point I had to come back. But yeah, that's getting some international experience, seeing yeah. how different countries and healthcare systems work. Clearly, that's uh, that's a good broadening experience. You come back to uh, the Bay Area for uh, NGM. Uh, what, what did you uh, learn and do there? Yeah, so... Um, at the time when I joined, MGM uh, was one of those companies, by the way, this was in uh, the early days um, of the, the company where they were hiring um, in research. And this was also a time when the biotech market, market was, um, you know, not in its, you know, peak moments. Um, so this was a high risk um, early stage company where it was all, all in target discovery from the start, right? So very far at that point from the clinic, it was identifying novel biology, new targets, and then developing, um, you know, biologics-based therapeutics um, from there. And the goal for this company was to just to create, you know, that next, if you can say it hubersclea, next Genentech, right? Where you would have a sustained pipeline of biologics coming from, um, you know, the significant R&D engine. So I joined around um, when the company was about 30, 40 folks, one of very few people on the GNA side. And my role there was just to really enable R&D to do what they needed to do, right? Ensure that they had the funding and all of the operational and infrastructure support um, to do that. So, um, you know, I was there for nine years and helped the company grow to where it is today. We took the company public in 2019, um, obviously had to put in place some, you know, collaborations along the way to fund that R&D engine and help that engine advance um, and help some of the programs advance. Um, and it's nice to see now as a public company with a deep pipeline um, in late various stages of clinical development, um, it, it was a, a great ride. Now, did you start in a business development role and then take on additional responsibilities, or what? What did your career arc look like there? Yeah, as you probably know, right? Like, uh, if you have to hire a business person um, in a small biotech company, your um, main role is in business development, right? Um, and so, yes, I did start. Um, in a BD role, but I knew um, 
that the role here at this company and other small companies um, that I joined, I didn't want to have just that narrow focus, right? My goal was to help build this company and do whatever it needed. So it took on broader operational aspects. Um, and um, yeah, so for everything very from strategic, operational into business development was my role. Okay. And you end up as president and chief operating officer. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Okay. So how did you end up getting connected into the uh, Versant Ventures orbit or the, the venture capital community? Yeah, I think, you know, being out here in, um, in, in the Bay Area and working with at small companies, it's a natural thing um, to be part of the network. But also, as you may know, um, a lot of the first and team um, were prior colleagues of mine, actually. I've known them for quite a long time um, outside of, um, you know, the, the venture or when they even joined the fund. Um, and I've just been observing them from afar, you know, looking at how they have so successfully built um, and seeded and launched companies um, and, you know, how what their strategy has been, right, in supporting these companies from the early science days um, to, to drug products. And so um, when, you know, I was starting to, like, stick my neck out and think about what would be the next new challenge for me, um, and for me, that would be, you know, kind of build, but maybe even from an earlier standpoint, right, maybe being the first company, first person at a company and running that experiment. Um, they were one of the first um, funds that I talked to because um, I'm sure that they were very close to lots of interesting science than they were. So how did you get exposed to uh, what became Lycia? Yeah, um, you know, they... They had been, they being Versant, um, yes, as I mentioned, um, always thinking about what would be the next, um, you know, science or technology that the field um, needs to um, develop, right, or be a part of. And, you know, protein degradation has clearly been um, an area of interest for quite a long time. Um, and so one of the things that we've been thinking about was how can there, is there an orthogonal approach or something differentiated within protein degradation? Because we know it's going to be such an important modality. Um, and they've been thinking about the, you know, extracellular space. And then um, Carolyn Bertozzi, who's our founder, um, tweeted her preprint. And then we looked at it and said, oh, my gosh, this is an exciting um, technology this smells like a company could, you know, and so um, that's when Versant you know, immediately spoke with Carolyn um, and, you know, they brought that into um, Versant's incubator system, as you may have heard about, Inception, the team down in San Diego, where they were able to quickly validate that platform um, and the technology and think about what would they be the potential, right, for um, a degradation platform like Litax, um, and that was the birth of Lycia. Well, why don't we back up just a bit for people who are unfamiliar with targeted protein degradation? I'll take a stab at it. Um, the, this is the idea that you can create what they call heterobifunctional small molecules. It's a small molecule with uh, a couple of arms to it, so to speak, that can kind of latch on to th th these are proteolysis, proteolysis targeting chimeras. That, that latch on to an enzyme called an E3 ligase uh, and then to another target that you want to hit and then drag that 
disease protein into the proteasome, which is the cellular trash compactor, basically. This has been around for 20-some years. Uh, researchers at Yale and Caltech and elsewhere have been working on it for a long time. Companies have been started. Um, actually had Nello Mainolfi of Chimera Therapeutics on a previous show. Uh, Arvinus is another well-known company in the area. Um, a lot of people working on this and excited. Why why are people so excited about uh, these Protax, these um, these targeted protein degraders? Luke, I have to say you're gonna you 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 would do a really great job drafting S one documents for many of these companies. So. <laughs> that was perfect. Um, yeah, I mean you you can imagine right. You know the you're more. Um, and I'm going to use air quotes here, typical um, drug modalities as you think about small molecules and antibody drugs are always um, looking or generally looking to inhibit um, or block, right, a particular interaction, signaling um, function um, between two targets or molecules or proteins, however you want to describe it more generally, right? Um, and as you think about, um, you know, there are some proteins or targets there that don't actually have a signaling partner, but they do have some functional relevance um, and pharmacology that's driving disease or just the mere existence, right, of this protein in excess, for example, um, can drive, um, you know, certain pathology. And so if you think about what would be the ideal modality um, to go after something like this. It was actually just to get rid of it, right? Um, and so that's, I think, why everyone's really excited about this approach is because it just adds a new and different toolbox tool in the toolbox for you to go after a certain set of targets. It's drugging the undruggable, as people used to say. I don't know if people say that anymore, but it opens up a, a whole bunch of targets on proteins that... Um, but would have been just uh, inaccessible or would have been really hard to you know, find something that binds r the right way. Uh, they got these uh, uh, difficult geometric pockets, right? You can suddenly make a, a molecule that can do a couple different things to get rid of it. That's right. Okay. So, so coming back to what you saw in that preprint from Carolyn Bertozzi's lab at Stanford, what was different about what she was describing in that preprint? And funny little side note, actually, um, I think this came out in 2019. I actually interviewed her for the Long Run podcast around the time this preprint came out. I didn't really know what she was talking about. She, we, we talked about other things uh, that she had been working on in that visit, but uh, I found out later that this was really important. Yeah, I mean, she's quite prolific, right? Um, and there's probably so much um, that you you had talked to her about and there's many more right wings um, and that's my general experience with caroline whenever i talk to her we scratch a little bit of the surface and then there's so much more um that there is behind the scenes um yeah i mean you know one of the things about caroline i remember my first conversation with her to talk about lycia and litax she had actually been following you know craig and ray deshaies um the whole protac field for quite a long time right because i think she also saw the power of what protein degradation can do um but craig you know, she, at yale and, and ray deshaies ray deshaies was at caltech he's now um, a research leader at amgen yes thanks thanks for clarifying that luke um and she 
is a glycobiologist, right? And so she thought about the proteins of interest to her um, that are out in the extracellular proteome. And as you know, protax um, have to use machinery that's inside the cell and therefore can only access um, cytosolic or intracellular proteins. And so she started thinking about, okay, well, how can I harness the power of protein degradation, but access the, you know, circulating proteins and factors and, you know, those proteins that have significant extracellular domains um, with a new technology, new platform. And that's what gave rise um, to LITAX, which are lysosomal targeting chimera. And they hit secre- They can be made to bind with secreted and cell surface uh, or membrane proteins. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And- now, what was so hard about doing this before? And I mean, had other people tried it? I don't know. I mean, this is one of those things where if you, um, you know, the best type of innovation or uh, invention is when you think about how simple and elegant this is and why have I not thought of it before, right? And that was the moment I think many people had when they read her preprint. <laughs> why didn't we think of this? And maybe there were people that had, but she at least was the first to demonstrate it um, and publish it from our perspective. So um, it was great because it's thinking about what is already naturally occurring um, with respect to cell biology and then latching on to that, right? Um, to, towards protein degradation as we're talking about and how powerful it can be. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. And if you like listening to the long run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column, and insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. Well, certainly there's no shortage of targets inside the cell, so plenty of labs were busy. Uh, thinking about whether they could make protax against those targets. That's totally a legitimate line of inquiry. Uh, But there's plenty outside the cell too. Uh, And uh, so when you looked at that preprint paper from 2019, and I think it was published in Nature a year later, what what were some of the first questions that you and the Versant team had about whether this could, uh, what what did you have to answer to um, assure yourselves that this could be, a, you know, an extension of this whole new therapeutic modality? Yeah, I mean, if you think about um, the extracellular proteome, that makes up about forty percent, right, of um, of the space, and those 
targets that can't be accessed by um, the other approaches, right, by Protox and glues as an example. And so um, as with any new technology or platform, one of the key questions we asked ourselves is why, where should we apply LITAX and why do we need it now, right? Why is it going to be differentiated from, you know, the other options, the other modalities? Where is it going to be the most powerful? So I think that was the key question that we had to ask first. Um, in addition to, I think, you're, you know, naturally you want to establish in your own hands and demonstrate, um, you know, proof of concept, both in vitro and in vivo on some key systems, right? Um, that these LITAX can indeed, you know, significantly deplete or knock down, um, you know, a certain target. So, you know, doing those things in parallel are really important in the early days of the company. Can you talk just a little bit about the molecules themselves? Uh, do they do they latch on? That they do have that that two-pronged heterobifunctional capability, but are they not latching onto the E3 ligase like the other class? Yeah, no. So um, you did a great job describing Protax um, and that they are heterobifunctional molecules and LITAX are indeed also heterobifunctional molecules, um, but they use different... Um, first of all, there's different components, right? So it's obviously what are you binding to um, and also the garbage disposal system, right? So the very first difference between a ProTAC and a LITAC is that, um, you know, you, the ProTACs are using the proteasome for degradation and that's the machinery that's inside the cell. LITAC, as in the name, um, is actually going to the other um, cellular machinery that acts as the garbage disposal system for much larger proteins um, and um, and aggregates and I mean like lots of large things um, end up in the lysosome and ultimately get degraded. So that's the one main difference. Um, so now, if you think about having um, what I mentioned earlier, right? The key, the key here is to take advantage of um, naturally occurring biology. Um, and we and Carolyn had identified, you know, there are these self-surface proteins, right, which we call internalizing receptors. And if you think about these, these are the shuttles, okay, to the garbage disposal system or the lysosome. And so we want to latch on to these, this conveyor belt, right, this naturally running shuttle or conveyor belt that brings things from the outside of the cell um, into the lysosomal system where everything then gets degraded. And so um, that's what the heterobifunctional, um, if you think about the two arms, one arm is binding your target or protein that you want to degrade. And then the other arm is binding um, this internalizing receptor. So this is, this again, the cell surface protein that's going to drag and shuttle um, the uh, protein into the lysosome for degradation. Okay, that is really helpful. Uh, so it still needs to get inside the cell so yep. it can be de degraded. Right. Um, and and this is key. This is different than, say, you know, antibodies or something where you can target a cell surface receptor, but usually you're, you're blocking it. You're not mm -hmm. trying to use the antibody to get something in. Or maybe I should ask this a different way. How do you, uh, what um, modalities can you kind of, piece together here to achieve that that dragging and the degradation 
I'm glad you asked that because um, one of the things about the LIHTC platform is that we're actually modality agnostic, right? So the only thing that we really need is a binder to that target that you're interested in. And in fact, we don't even need a functional binder. And what I mean by that is it only needs to have specificity to the protein or the target that you're trying to degrade. And we don't care whether it has any functional activity, right? Because the LIHTC component is what's imparting the pharmacology. Um, so we can take advantage of any existing small molecules, antibodies um, as binders to the um, to, to the target, and we also are generating, you know, all protein or bispecific based, um, you know, LIHTC constructs. So again, um, we are very agnostic in terms of the modality that we're using. So you can play around with some different structures here to achieve the same goal. Uh, what, what have you learned here the first couple years of the company? Is Are, are there certain advantages or disadvantages of, of these different constructs? Yeah, um, because, you know, the main thing here is thinking about what is actually going to drag um, the LIHTC into the cell. And it's these, you know, special ligands um, that bind to those internalizing receptors, right? And so we spent actually um, the first couple years really expanding the library as well as the SAR of all the different LIHTACs to each of these internalizing receptors. So the SAR is a structure activity yeah. relationship. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, as you see from the experience from the protax, right, like you try to um, have rational design, right, as much as you can. And what we've seen um, in our hands with LITAX, which may be differentiating um, from the protac field, is that when you find yourself with a, uh, an optimized LITAX system for a particular internalizing receptor, that seems to translate from, from target to target, which is really nice. Right. So you actually do have some modularity, so to speak. Right. You have a plug and play approach where you have the best LIHTC ligands that you can use from program to program. And how how long of a half life are you seeing? Because I, I know that's been um, a feature of the ProTac field. Right. Because, you know, um, with you with these degraders, you're basically imparting a new clearance mechanism right, um, for these drugs. And so um, that's one of the things that we actually see that when the drugs are rapidly cleared, um, we also see the rapid and significant depletion of the target along with it. So as long as you have, um, you know, created drug that has su sufficient exposure so that it can do, so that it can bind to the target that you're interested in degrading, and then subsequently to the internalizing receptor um, that will be shuttling your drug into the lysosome. Um, that's the main piece. And that's what we've been able to develop a lot of um, our SAR, as you mentioned, and, or, and data around to find that best fit. But now in terms of the, maybe it's too early to talk about target product profiles, but um, what kind of dosing interval do you think might be achievable with LITAX? It doesn't seem like a, a modality that requires daily dosing or twice daily. It, it might be once a week or or less frequently. Yes, and that's what we're aiming for. And at least our initial um, biologic-based LITAX. So again, these are antibody 
um, conjugates or the bispecific antibody approaches, we would um, we are aiming for a once weekly, maybe even once every two weeks, subcutaneous um, dose. Now, okay. if we were going after small molecule or low molecular weight litax, I think those would probably require more frequent dosing as you anticipated. Okay. Okay. Now, I heard you mention earlier that these litax can uh, can bind with and degrade aggregates. Uh, now, that's uh, that seems pretty important because there's a lot of diseases. I can think of Alzheimer's right off the top. Uh, as one uh, where the pathology says there's these big aggregates that are hard to bust up with a targeted antibody, let's say, or or you know clear through other means. How are you thinking about uh, prioritizing indications with the tools that you have? Yeah, I mean that's one of the um, you know key classes of um, targets so to speak, um, that we thought of immediately, right, when we spoke earlier around, you know, why would you need a LIHTC and where can it be differentiated? Um, if you think about the diseases that are driven by deposits of misfolded proteins, right, like Alzheimer's, like amyloidosis, um, you know, the, the thing that you would like to do is to get rid of these deposits, right? Whereas you, and I'm, again, I'm going to be generally speaking here, but if you think about antibodies um, that bind to these um, deposits, sometimes they end up actually stabilizing them, which can exacerbate the condition, right? And so um, ideally, you want to degrade these protein deposits. And so those are the exact kind of um, areas that we think it's really important for a new modality to come in and, um, you know, show that type of differentiation. Um, but, you know, I would also say that, again, for a small company who has a new platform or a new modality, I think it's really important for us to, you know, validate that technology and prove that differentiation, right? And do that in the clinic um, as quickly as possible. Um, but then, so you have to think about how much additional um, biology risk that you want to take relative to the inherent technology risk that you have, right? With a new platform or new modality. Um, and so we had to think through, you know, how much um, the bio, how much of the biology and the mechanism, right? If you think about the linkage of, um, some of these, like like tau, as an example, right? Um, how clear is it that if you were to deplete this, that it was actually going to have an improvement on patients? And so we had to think through very clearly, you know, um, it, to the degree that there's clinical validation, right, for a particular target protein, that if we knocked that down, that it's going to impart clinical benefit for patients, then maybe that has a higher priority than something where it's still a big question mark. And so that's how we've been thinking about prioritization. Let's. Uh, can I ask you a little bit about building the company? Because uh, I, I think you joined in spring of 2020, so right at the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> uh, you got your uh, funding, which I think was 50 million. Yeah. So it was um, uh, Versen had committed up to 50, right, in the in the Series A. Yes, at the company. So how did you get this thing started and and really start? you know, answering some of these key questions. Yes, um, it was really interesting because when I had made the decision to join Lycia, um, COVID wasn't really something that we all understood or knew about. In fact, I don't even think I actually had heard about it at the time. Um, and then my last day, 
at NGM was the first day of shelter in place here in San Mateo County. So um, that's when the realities sank in that I would be, you know, the first employee in trying to build a new company um, in the face of a pandemic that we're just still learning about, right? Um, and so, as you know, the most critical piece here is um, the people and the talent that you're bringing in to really advance the science and the technology. So I think that has been a core part of the early days, which is, um, you know, recruiting the best scientists into the company. Um, but while you're doing that, you don't want the science to be stagnant, right? And so we were really fortunate. And one of the things that attracted me, um, you know, to the the Versant ecosystem was because they have these incubators um, like Inception, where they had basically like 20 scientists, you know, working away on Litax, um, and they continued to do so while building the company Lycia up here in South San Francisco. So it was really, um, it was a great, you know, um, set of resources that we had um, from the beginning. So, you know, as if it's not hard enough to start a company, uh, <laughs> you had this extra um, external factor weighing in, but you did kind of have a running start with that inception group there uh, that had been working to reproduce some of the work uh, and build on well, what had been uh, coming out of the Stanford group uh, in, at the Bertozzi lab. Um, okay, so you you raised the money, you recruited some people, you got to work on um, assembling these different kinds of constructs and figuring out the structure activity relationship. You're prioritizing uh, where the LITAX might be most beneficial. Then you, um, you put on your business development hat again, and you did a partnership with uh, Eli Lilly about a year or so in to the company. Can you t talk a little bit about that partnership and what it means to the growth of the company? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, when Carolyn's um, preprint came out, and then obviously the subsequent Nature paper, um, there was a lot of interest just generally in the field um, in her approach, right? Because as you know, many of the pharma companies have recognized over the years the importance of protein degradation. Um, and as they thought about their own pipelines, there are you know, extracellular proteins of interest that they would like to degrade too, right? So I think we had interest pretty early on um, at the company in terms of, you know, how could they um, access this platform um, and you know, address some of the challenges that they're facing. So um, we, you know, one of the things that we want to make sure at Lycia is that we want to advance our own um, pipeline of LITAC drugs. But at the same time, we recognize there's not, we can't do everything. Right, because as we mentioned, the extracellular proteome is quite that, um, and so we just have wanted to be thoughtful around if we were to put in place a collaboration, it was going to be around areas I think that we could advance our technology, but at the same time would be in areas that maybe you know the the pharma company would bring in value in terms of the biology. Um, and or some areas that we obviously didn't have expertise in. And so as we thought about the different, you know, um, organizations really just, you know, uh, elevated to the, to, to the top in the sense that they just really understood the power of the platform, had lots of different areas of interest that they wanted to explore. And these were ones that we, you know, as a company, Lycia had interest in but couldn't really um, we just couldn't resource um, at the start, and so it was a great, it was a great, um, um, you know, 
synergy that we observed um, from the beginning and continue to see um, now with the collaboration ongoing. Why do you think, could you say a little bit more about why Lily uh, rose to the top of your list as a potential partner? You know, because when you, um, you know, a lot of the companies, there's so many different, um, as you know, different parts of the organization, different disease areas, right? And therapeutic areas. And as you have those conversations, you can see when you explain what LITAX can do, um, that that you could see the light bulbs go off. And this happened with many different companies, right? But there was just so many. You could see the opportunity um, set in their eyes that was that, that this could be so impactful for many different areas of their organization. Um, and it just came through in all of the discussions. Um, that level of excitement and that energy, um, well, and obviously the terms um, don't hurt as well, right? I think that all kind of you know, points together. And I think another piece that people don't value as much is you can see how well the teams work together from the start, right? When you think about scoping out what the collaboration is going to look like and you have your scientists together in the room, um, that was a really, um, it was nice to see because that actually is, I think, an example of how, um, or a preview, actually, is probably a better word, a preview of what the collaboration could be like. Now you, um, I think you got thirty-five million upfront cash, so you got some extra resources to advance your platform. Um, you know, a lot of bio dollars, more than a billion, uh, if uh, these various programs pan out. Um, how did you think about um, uh, uh, retaining ownership to some of your programs, or because uh, you don't want to give away the whole store uh, to one partner, right? That's right. Um, you know, we, we, it's a five target collaboration up to five targets. Um, and we have named two, right. Um, targets right now. Um, and they have the ability to name a few more and it was important for us to be able to put some, uh, mechanisms and guardrails around what those, um, targets can be. So as long as these are programs that Lycia is not researching or working on, um, I'll leave out all the contract details, but basically that's what it is, right? Like they can't, um, we can't move into the collaboration targets that, you know, Lycia is interested in working on. I think in in the press release, they mention immunology and pain as a couple of broad areas of interest. Uh, Why those areas for uh, you and Lily? You know, it, it, these are areas that, you know, Lily has longstanding, you know, research and development in. And we saw very clearly that these the targets that they proposed made a lot of sense, right? Again, it goes back to where's the therapeutic hypothesis for differentiation? And that was clear to both companies. But these were also in areas where we knew that Lycia couldn't advance as quickly on our own. Um, and or we saw that they had a lot of development and commercialization expertise in this area. Um, and so I think that was just a, a great place, right? Because Lycia does what, um, you know, we bring to the table the LITAX and the drug molecules. They bring forth the biology and the downstream expertise. And so that that was seemed to be, um, like I said before, just a great place. Okay. So how far along are you in development uh, about say two and a half years, we're recording this two and a half years in to this uh, startup adventure. Um, how, where are you and uh, and where do you think you're going to be in a year? Yeah, it's the crystal ball question. Um, so we, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the, 
we've progressed the platform so extensively in the last two years. Um, so, you know, we talked about the different components of the LITAX. I think, you know, we've built out a, you know, LITAX suite for each, for various internalizing receptors, right? So um, the goal being that we want to be able to just develop the most, the, the optim best optimized LITAC, right, um, for each target that we may be interested in. And we don't want to be starting from um, zero, right? So now we have things that we can design pretty readily um, for our targets of interest. So that's, you know, um, due to the great work the team had, you know, built out this platform for the last two years. And also, as I mentioned in parallel, we've been prioritizing, you know, different um, areas that we should um, work on initially. And so now we're actually parallel prosecuting multiple programs that are, I think, are vying for those precious um, IND slots, right, at a small company. Um, and so I think, you know, data will tell um, in terms of which ones will land out on top. And um, hopefully that's something that we can talk more about in the coming year. Okay. Okay. So you're not putting a firm timeline on when that first IND will be filed or which indication, which target it might be. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. But it's if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like you really want to be thoughtful about getting the platform, the molecules right first out of the gate. And maybe not fall into a trap, which I think sometimes companies do, which is they they come out with version 1.0 uh, of their new new molecule and they, they, they move it ahead as quickly as they can because a lot of people want that. Uh, but then they realize, yeah, actually there's some engineering improvements for version 2.0 that uh, are, are really essential. Um, and, but, and then your company gets, but your company gets defined by version 1, 1 1.0. Is this something that, that has entered your mind or your boards? Yeah. And I think we're trying to do a little bit of everything, right. Um, or do both. Right. So I think, but we do believe that version 1.0 of LIHTAX, um, are actually going to be. Um, very viable and meaningful drugs, right? And so if we took, what I what would I would say is if you think about LIHTAC 1.0 and, you know, looking at that drug profile that we've observed, where can that be the most impactful? Which target, again, it all goes back to that therapeutic hypothesis and um, differentiation rationale for LIHTAC for that particular target for that particular disease. Um, and that has, and that's, the number one thing that we've been thinking about for each program. And then, um, as I mentioned before, we need to ensure that there is very strong biological data, right? There has to be a demonstrated link between the target that you're trying to knock down or deplete um, and the disease um, pathogenicity. So that's really critical as well. Um, and then the, the piece about moving very quickly to the clinic, that's really important for us, right? And so there needs to be a very clear path in translation from preclinical models to um, an early phase one, phase one B study, um, where we can show, um, you know, that there's going to be benefit patients. And similar to what you've probably heard with the ProTax is that we have a very clear biomarker in patients in that first phase one, phase one B study, because that's the target that you're trying to degrade. And as I just mentioned, right, there have to be a link between the knockdown of that and the disease itself, right? So there are 
the things that we're working on, you can, um, we're hypothesizing that we can actually get even early clinical data because of how quickly and how, um, and the degree, right, of the degradation that we are observing um, with our drug candidates. So we think actually version 1.0, um, you know, we, even with the goal of being fast to the clinic and proof of concept, they, they should be meaningful drugs, right? Otherwise, we shouldn't be working on them. Um, but the team is also working on version 2.0, right? So that um, it's not that they are going to be better than 1.0 in the sense of like, oh, we wish we had that for those targets or diseases that we're going after first. It just means we're accessing a different set of targets, right? Um, with the, um, that can only be enabled by version 2.0. Does that help? I got with? it. Yeah, yeah. A different set of targets that makes yep. sense that are accessible with uh, some engineering um, tweaks. Right. Um, but But the important thing is that the original molecules are doing what they're supposed to do biologically and that is achieving the desired therapeutic effect and that you can draw a line between these two things uh, in in those early clinical trials to give you the confidence to go to (laughs) phase two, phase three. That's right. Uh, Okay. Um, Now, I don't know if you know the answer to this yet. It's still new, but uh, there was a uh, a bill passed about uh, the, the the Inflation Reduction Act. You saw uh, that uh, puts some constraints around what a uh, country is going to pay for small molecules. I don't know if your modality falls under this or not, uh, but does this, uh, it, essentially it takes away some incentive for drug developers of small molecules. And I think a listener to this show, if you've listened carefully, <laughs> it, there's not such a neat dividing line between small molecule, traditional medicinal chemistry, and you know newer generation biologics. It can get kind of blurry at times. Is this affecting your thinking, or or might it going forward in terms of the programs that you prioritize for for development? Yeah, it's it's almost like unfortunate that we have to like bring that to the forefront, and that impacts on how you think about what you're developing, right? Because um, that can hamper, right? Um, innovation and drugs that need to be out there. Um, but more specifically, I think for Lycia, you know, our initial programs are probably what you would categorize in the biologics, um, as a biologic. So probably not immediately impacted, um, by, by this new act. Um, but that being said, I think that you know, we still believe very, very much that if you have a drug that needs to be developed because it is going to be either the only approach, right, for a particular particular disease or is going to be much better um, than the other options, I think it's still very much worthwhile in developing because the patient needs it. So the incentives are still there to do what for you us, do. For us, yes, right, because there has to be, like, it goes back to that, again, that whole therapeutic hypothesis. It has to be a very clear differentiation between existing small molecules, drugs, the competitive landscape. So you, you've thought about undruggable targets, right? These are, you know, likely patients that don't have, you know, any drug options um, that we're going after. So um, I think that that will just have to be on a case-by-case basis, right, in, in thinking about um, if we had to go up there and argue for a certain price you know, um, down, down the road, I think we probably have a really strong place. Well, uh, let's hope so. Uh, because there, there's so much, uh, going on here that, uh, uh, so much possibility 
with uh, with new targets and and indications or patients in need, um, underserved groups of people, uh, and then uh, I think everybody's rooting for um, the targeted protein degraders, whether they're <laughs> intracellular, extracellular. Um, it's a it's an emerging field. Um, Etna Trombley, thanks for joining me today on the long run. Thanks for having me here, Luke. That's fun. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.